Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of The Research Show. I'm Emma Bridger, founder and director at People Lab. And this is show 29, can you believe? And I've got a really, really special show for you today. Got some really, uh, well, VIP guests actually that I'll introduce in just one second. Um, but this show is, is, is really, um, it, it's a very special show today. You'll find out in just a second. And we are going to be celebrating, um, talking about, trying to understand more autism. Um, now, you might know that it's um, actually it's Autism Day, I think, is the uh, 2nd of April, which is, is tomorrow at the time of recording. It's also Autism Month throughout April, and it's also World Autism Acceptance Week from the 28th of March to the 3rd of April. So today's show is dedicated to autism and neurodiversity. But just before we get gets started on the show and introduce you to our very special guests. I wanted to share a few stats with you that I certainly found quite shocking when I read them recently. Um, so some of the latest information looking at, well, from the, the National Autistic Society, looking at um, employment of people with autism, shows that in the UK, um, at least, um, people with autism are, are, you know, are really struggling to get into work. So in their survey, they found that just 16% of autistic adults from full-time employment um, 25% had, has said they never worked, but 77% of unemployed autistic people want to work. It's quite a shocking statistic and absolutely something that needs to change. Um, and I think it's what's really interesting is that, and we'll talk about this in just a short while, is that for many years, neurodiversity has been pathologized as a medical condition to be overcome or even cured, which we now know is absolutely, you know, not the way to approach autism. We now look at it much more as a kind of a, a natural form of human neurocognitive variation. So there's a growing realization that actually the challenges and the, the, you know, the, the stereotypes that people with autism have faced are really down to kind of navigating society that's kind of set up predominantly for what we call neurotypicals, so people that, that aren't described as, as neurodiverse. So to raise awareness of this subject, what we wanted to do was to invite a couple of guests on who are autistic. And um, some of you might remember a few years ago, we um, I wrote a blog interviewing uh, my husband and my son, who are both autistic, and I have to say, it's one of our best performing blogs to date. People loved it, got so much great feedback. So I managed to persuade them to come on to today's show to talk about their experiences of, of being autistic and neurodiverse. Um, so in a sec, I'll just introduce uh, Ted, my husband, and Harry, my son. Um, and what was really interesting for me, actually, is that normally when we, we do the shows, as you know, if you're a regular listener, we ask people to talk about themselves a little bit and perhaps share something that the audience might not want to know. And straight away, when I kind of gave both Ted and Harry a little bit of a download as to what we cover, they said, don't want to answer that question. So straight away, there's a real difference for me in terms of how um, somebody described as neurotypical might approach being interviewed on the research show versus someone that's neurodiverse. So you'll get to know Ted and Harry over the next sort of 45 minutes or so and what they're all about. So as I said, uh, Ted, husband, uh, is autistic and Harry, my son, is also autistic. So I'm going to come to the first question that hopefully you'll find relevant. And, and um, Harry, I'm going to ask you this question first, if I can. Um, what was your journey like to um, understanding that you are autistic? I'm going to reflect on that a little bit. Shall share a little bit of your journey so far. Um, okay. Well, I think in terms of understanding it, you kind of, you have to start at the point at which it was before I could really understand it. So I was 
diagnosed when I was 10 years old. So back in 2015, I think it was. <clears throat> and before then, I'd always known that there was something different about me from, from everyone else, but I was never really sure exactly what, what it was. Um, but, sorry, doorbell's going off. Um, I'll get the doorbell. I didn't, I didn't know what it, what it, what it was um, that was um, different until I got the diagnosis. And then from that point onwards, things just started to make a lot more sense. Like I knew why, you know, why I couldn't be interested in things that everyone else seemed to be and why I couldn't, you know, what why I was good at different, uh, different things and why I was struggling with other areas. And it just, it just, yeah, helped it to make a lot more, a lot more sense. So it was this really sort of not cathartic moment because it wasn't really like a sudden epiphany really it was more gradual like things started making sense and then sort of the past seven nearly eight years since it's been more sort of gradual to the point I'm at now mm. so you, you sort of always known from from very young age that you were you're different then you and you were yeah not like the other kids yeah I, I'd always known and I'd always been told <laughs> okay and, and Ted what about you you've had a slightly different journey with with autism and, and your well your your path haven't you to realization what, what's your journey been like uh, yeah, well, I think the discovery of the um, um, that I was neurodiverse um, it came about when we were looking at Harry's needs. Uh, what we, we we knew when Harry was born, it was pretty clear to us that he was probably autistic. We understood that. I think you had an inkling that you'd accidentally married an autistic person yourself. Um, my my journey was when Harry was obviously diagnosed. You and I went through a process and, and essentially you diagnosed my autism. You know, my it transpired that part of my score was much higher than Harry's. Um, there was a wonderful moment where you decided to tell the world on Facebook that our revelation that we discovered, like we were having a baby. Look, everyone, we've discovered Ted is neurodiverse. And literally every single one of my friends messaged me and said, what do you mean you didn't know? How could you know? We all knew. We've always known. And I thought that was quite, a, it was quite a big reveal, I think, that we know we're different. It's in our lives, it's every day of our lives, it's how we interact with other people. We sometimes do or see things or experience things or express ourselves differently, often unusually. And obviously, I think those people have taken the time to understand that, perhaps have understood it and never felt the need to discuss it always with us. I was, as a child, I was always referred to as odd or eccentric or unusual. You know, it, it brought about other, uh, I guess, I guess, gifts and problems that would manifest. But I assume you've got more questions about those as we yeah, yeah. move on. And of course, Ted, you've also got a, a, an added layer of ADHD on top of your yes, autism did, as well, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, it always, it, yes, absolutely. And that again became apparent as to what that had been. I'd always been naughty. I'd always been disruptive, difficult, um, emotionally volatile. They'd always been parts of my life, so I didn't fully understand what it meant. And actually, to discover that, I think it's something like seventy percent of Asperger stroke autistic people present as ADHD, and that's a massive part. It's 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 the, the part that makes the emotional regulation slightly more difficult. It it led to the me essentially spending most of my school years being naughty and being in um, disciplinary processes. Yeah. So actually, I was going to ask about school. So you, you, you've kind of you've, you've taken us beautifully that question, Ted. So school wasn't a particularly um, good experience for you. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, it was a very mixed experience. Obviously, you know, when you grow up, other kids, you know, I had friends who recognised and perhaps valued it. 
plenty of kids growing up, going to school would see you as odd or different, perhaps play on that. I think luckily for me, I always say luckily for me, my ADHD is presented strongly enough and I was often emotionally agitated enough by people trying to give me a more robust experience of being odd and different. They were a little bit more cautious <laughs> as to my responses because they were probably much more aware I was likely to respond fairly poorly in, in a heightened, uh, heightened emotional state. And obviously that would manifest itself you know, in more aggressive and physical fashion. So I think, you know, there's many people that probably would understand or ex uh, know that experience. And, mm. you know, it was, it was one of my tools, I guess, defensive or protective tools was be to become aggressive. And yeah. um, that helped, and so oddly, we, I mean, you and I talk about it sometimes, Em, that oddly some of my um, easing mechanisms through being autistic is the ADHD kind of perhaps lessens it a little bit more, makes me a little bit more outward going and a little bit more forthright, perhaps. Mm -hmm. yeah. And obviously Harry struggled a little bit at times because he's a, he's a, he's a very um, sensitive and genuine character and less frothy headed than me. Mm -hmm. So he's perhaps in some ways had a tougher ride, really. So mm. so Harry, how, how was school for you being, being autistic, being different? Well, I mean, as I mentioned, I was always... There was always that, that disconnect between, between me and a lot of other people. So I really struggled, and I still to this day struggle with, um, especially when I was young, you know, forming friendships or, or, or making friends with people or just any sort of real human, human uh, connection was immensely difficult because there was always that void. And, you know, when you've got young kids, they don't understand what it is or what's different. I wasn't diagnosed, so I didn't understand. So I'd always just come across as, as some weird kid who didn't really know what he was doing. Um. So there was a lot of that, and that still kind of continues, um, continued onwards quite a lot. Um, academically, I mean, it served me quite well uh, because I have that, you know, ability to focus. Um, so that 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 has mostly been quite helpful. But on on the social side, it's been a bit different. I mean, yeah, I, I'm immensely lucky that I'm not one of those. Um, as a lot of autistic people are, one of those people who was you know bullied through school that, that I managed to get off with that but it it, it wasn't necessarily too much easier because I didn't really have many people that I felt I could turn to if stuff wasn't going masterly well back then mm. yeah interesting and do you think that you were you were supported in your school days by the system to, to an extent I mean I mean you you guys certainly did but um when I was younger, definitely pre-diagnosis, it, it wasn't, there wasn't really a, a support mechanism there. I just sort of had to get on with it. And then, you know, the, the things with prompting the diagnosis when I, when I was 10, part of it was um, I was starting to get in trouble for things that I had very little control over. One of them was I was immensely slow at getting change for PE and I was getting in trouble for that from PE teachers. I mean, you know, you know how PE teachers are, but, um, and I was starting to get into trouble for that and, and other bits and pieces like, you know, homework stuff or, Little bit, little bits and pieces here and there that were building up, so that it was becoming a significant enough problem that we were like, right, this is this is seriously a thing. He's not getting the, I'm not getting the support I need. We need to look into this, and that led to you, yeah, organising the diagnosis. And well, I mean, I I was diagnosed, which is yeah. useful. I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation. Isn't it? I, mean, I think, as you said, the, the reason that the, the prompt for us to really get you diagnosed was that we felt that you were being unfairly discriminated against at school because you were clearly different and we were. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say discriminated against. I just think yeah. if, you, if you don't know that someone, if you can't 
tell what it is that's different about someone you, you're not going to recognize it and try and look for those those differences and i think because neurotypical people can be often quite blind to autistic people which is a point i imagine we'll touch on a bit later but you know they they, they sort of they have a lot of people have an image they expect to see which is sort of far more of one type of thing and most autistic people aren't really like that and there's so much variation in it that often it goes unnoticed especially if you're not in consistent regular contact with someone so i think because they didn't know they were they were just sort of true you know seeing me the same as any other neurotypical kid yeah and it was quite a it was quite a big question really as to whether it would be helpful or not to get you diagnosed and i think you know the we we landed on it we thought it'd be helpful because then the school would have to make adjustments to to yeah. help you you know you know within, within your school life which i think was a positive but i know ted going back to you obviously you, you didn't have that and, and um do you think that was a benefit or a cost in terms of not having that official diagnosis when you were at school um i think uh i don't think it really existed um uh People didn't really know about what uh, what autism was about. Aspergers. I think there were a lot. There were probably a lot of us around as there are now. I don't think people fully understand what it meant. I think in some ways, uh, there's a kind of an attrition aspect to it. I think a lot of people with Aspergers perhaps fell by the wayside and suffered, and perhaps and still suffer and are marginalised. I think a few managed to kind of, um, in, in some senses, you know, a, a difficult experiences of life sometimes define us or. I don't know. I, I think I had an aspect of bloody mindedness that helped me a little bit, be a little bit more, um, push myself out there a little bit more from time to time. But I think a lot of people fell by the wayside. Um, I think, um, you know, you know, we, I, I spent an awful lot of time being naughty. I wasn't naughty. I just didn't conform to what was expected, you know, in a, in, in generations where perhaps school was a little bit more regimented and, you know, teachers perhaps a little bit fiercer, and yeah, yeah you know. So you know, we were used to being shouting. Spent quite a lot of time sat on my own, or being isolated, or having to. You know, I had to I had to go. You know, because of some of my behavioural problems, I had to go to a special unit and sit where we were unattended, basically, just to remove us from the from the classroom space. And um, especially things, if I mean, I was very, always very aware of things becoming difficult. One of the things for autistic people is sometimes um, your environment is very. Um, uh, there's a lot going on in the environment and I think neurotypical people don't always pick up on that so I could sit in a classroom and sit in the classroom hearing scratching whispering you know scratching pens you know noise certain noises and the, and the constant um, pressure of having to sit physically still mm. is not always very easy because obviously you know being autistic we quite often need to twitch and jiggle around and do those more unusual things that people either find amusing or slightly bizarre and um, I, I used to increasingly find it would cause pressure for me and I would increasingly behave in such a way and then become isolated because of those behaviours so uh, you know it, it's, it's a, mix, a mixed bag really so you know so it defines us and perhaps some, some of us it makes us a little stronger but some of us it diminishes and I think it'd be nice to find a space where we can recognise in, especially in young children yeah uh, what their needs are and facilitate that and for people to really get a grip as to what that those they're, they're experiencing a quiet quiet classroom to an autistic child is not a quiet classroom it isn't that experience for them and it's trying to sort of convince people that it's not imagined it's not made up it's a real thing and that their senses are heightened and yeah. you know it's as me and harry always say it's very noisy in here sometimes isn't it harry yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Just everyday living in our own heads can be quite noisy places because of all the sounds and stimulations going on. So yeah. Yeah. And so what about then your experience in work? Obviously, Ted, you've had a lot more experience that, that than Harry. We'll come to Harry in a yes. minute. But we've we've heard the stats. The workplace is not set up for people with autism or, or different needs generally. Yes. Um, what, what was your experience of, of your working life, Ted? Uh, my experiences were kind of curious. I, as you well know, Emma, I have um, uh, what's, what's the word? I have very low ambition, as it were. I have a lot, of, a lot of things in life I'm satisfied by, and I value very highly. I'm not, I'm not financially. I've never been particularly financially motivated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, some of the peculiarities, and luckily for me, despite my own nature and some of my behaviours. Um, I was um, encouraged as I got, you know, school wasn't very successful. I later went to, to college to do A-levels, obviously got very lucky in and selected for university. They were very positive experiences for me. Um, in the workplace, I think due to um, perhaps a, um, the, my autistic nature, it was never detrimental. I think people would tolerate some of my unusual side because of, of the... Of the positives in terms of perhaps how I think see and deal with things so I'd always find myself you know typically I'd always find myself doing you know working in analytical type roles or roles along of that type because of some of the skills that being slightly hyper-focused and very attentive and very noticing mm. um, brought to those skill sets you know mm. those, uh, brought to those, those jobs so it's those sorts of things it served me well and obviously like Harry, we're quite sort of, uh, we're quite diligent by nature, aren't we, Harry, in lots of ways. So um, we can't so, help so usually you've had, you've had quite a positive experience at work. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd say quite a positive experience of work and not too much detriment. I think sort of sometimes the sort of, uh, not even the social aspect was difficult. I think, but luckily, perhaps being, as we always say, a nerd, I ended up working in nerdy environments with other nerds. We got on with ourselves. It was less pressure. And obviously, you know, as well as I did, when we when we first met and started dating, we were, I was in a very nerdy environment yeah. where the nerds were, with the best one in the world, elevated and valued very highly because of some of the more unusual skills we brought to what we did. Yeah, well, you made the most of money. <laughs> yeah, it was, early, it was early days of, you know, what would manifest into, into now. And, we, you know, a lot of it would be now what we call big data or, you know, analytics or programming, you know, those environments, they were populated by weird kids doing weird stuff that no one else understood. And, you know, we sort of made it our own, I guess, but. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Thank, thanks. And, and Harry, you know, obviously the age you're at, you haven't had a huge amount of experience, but you have had a little bit of work experience. So how, how has work been for you? Well, it's it was a, a very, very mixed bag, I think is a nice way of putting it. Um, it was, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, it was money, so that's the motivation. But yeah, I've only had one one job so far. Um, it was a very stressful environment, which I made the, the mistake of thinking, oh, I can deal with this. But it became, it was not one I was in any way. I think it'd be useful if you sort of tell us a little bit about what kind of job it was that you, you took. You, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get you, to that. You took it as a challenge, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, it was a cafe assistant, a local uh, beachfront cafe. Um, very, very like, quite popular one. So there's always very full on, always a lot of people there. Very sort of, modern trendy that that kind of that kind of thing um it was i'm just trying to think of the best way to put it it was very i took it on as a challenge i thought i need you know this will give me a lot of vital experience in some ways it did with with vital experience but there there was even then there was some there were downsides to it 
like most of the staff were sort of very young. Unfortunately, they were all quite young, quite very extroverted neurotypical people. And there wasn't really, uh, you know, a range of people there. Like they're all very young, very extroverted, going out all the time, always talking to everyone, always, you know, all that kind of thing. And I found it very difficult to try and interact with them, even about work-based things. So there was, there was sort of this void that came along between me and them. And they, they'd always, you know, have their stuff. And, and yeah, there wasn't as much conversing as I would have liked. Um and yeah, it was very stressful, but you know, there were positives. There were some really good people there who I think were very helpful. A few what of my co-workers. What about the environment itself for you? How did you experience that environment you were in? I mean, because I was mostly sat behind a desk, a quiet desk in the dark for years. So that suited me perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I like the act of moving around a bit and, you know, doing stuff, but there were points where it would get a bit stressful and it was, you know, there was a lot of, it was dynamic, but in the all the wrong ways, I think. So, uh, you know, I like it if there's stuff going on. It's part of the reason I love rain. But um, there were a couple of occasions yeah. I had to come and collect you because phys the physical noise of the music and the voices and the talking yeah. became overbearing for you, too powerful. And you, you really Very struggled much, yeah. often with that. And, uh, you know, we often talk about this, Harry, don't we? That sometimes we can sit in a room where there's a number of people and it's very hard to focus in on a specific voice. Yeah because you get all the voices and they all come in at a sort of relatively consistent um, um, pace and volume. It's very yeah. hard sometimes in busy. That's, yeah. Hard yeah that's the thing a lot of people it? don't realise about autistic people. We're not necessarily more sensitive in terms of like not being able to cope. It, it's more that when there's a lot of stimulus going on at once, we are firstly hypersensitive. So our senses, especially hearing uh, is quite a prevalent one can be heightened so everything, so it's all very loud. If, even if we're just in a room with, let's say, 10 people, 10 people all split into pairs. So five conversations going on simultaneously. So not only will they also, they'll be a lot louder. So it's a lot less difficult for us to hear anything we're doing. But the way our brains work, we can't, I, I, I think, imagine you probably know a lot bit more about the um, neurology of it necessarily, but it, it's, from my understanding of it, it's that our brains can't shut down the neural pathways that, know how to tune out noise so we can't tune it out so all five conversations that were happening in that theoretical room will be entering our brains simultaneously and we can't stop it so it's like having five you know all these separate things coming in all at the same time so it very quickly becomes too much to deal with yeah yeah which is unfortunately what my work environment was like yeah. yeah, I think that's, that actually highlights the difference for us, Harry, doesn't it? Very much so in terms of working environment. I mean, as Mummy sort of is focusing on the idea that, you know, autistic people would very much keen to be have meaningful work um, yeah. and the rewards of that. But the difficulties are the environments uh, can be difficult and the stimulations can be difficult. As you, you, you know, we go to a supermarket, we, Harry and I yeah. don't oh, hate supermarkets. supermarket if it's noisy, if it's busy, if it's bright lights. Yeah. Um, you know, if, uh, but in the workplace, as, as we, you know, you're, you found yourself a busy, very busy, noisy, musically loud cafe. You really struggled yeah. with that. You know, yeah, I part was, the problem was also I had um, managers who were always giving me lists of, well, not lists of instructions, but always like, do this, now do this, now do this. And it's just yeah. like, I prefer to just be given something that get on with and I can focus my efforts on that. Yeah. And that's like my thing that I'm doing. 
And that's the way it was, it was do this yeah. and then they'd interrupt me halfway through to get me to go and do something else. And there and was that's that. And that is possibly one of the blockers for a lot of autistic people and pathways into, yeah. into meaningful work is that there are certain ways in which they would tend to operate. They find more comfortable and easier, isn't it, Harry? And that Exactly, yeah. That when that is challenged, even the simple following several different steps or people changing the task at hand. Yeah rapidly could be coped with but then if you add stimu other stimulations in there it makes it more difficult and then we appear we, then we appear to sort of not to function whereas actually yeah. you know we're sort of in some ways we're functioning at a different vibration almost aren't we yeah so, so i think what i'm hearing there then is that you know to get more uh neurodiverse uh, neurodivergent people into work and uh, certainly from an autistic point of view it's about ensuring that you know we match the right kind of work type of work environment yeah. to, to what to what you need i guess yeah, yeah i think this applies to all neurotypical and neurodiverse people is that that we all have certain needs and we need to be more open to other people's needs in the workplace and and, yeah. and more accepting and cooperative over how we fulfill uh, our, our needs in any environment you know if it's even if it's cooking in the kitchen as a family perhaps you know you need to understand and perhaps certain roles and we all need to and, and taking the time to understand people's needs within that environment and the work working cooperatively with those those ideas really helps everybody i think because i mean i actually put it out ted you know you, you you've had quite um you know when, when you when you've been in work it's been quite a positive experience for you and you've done Usually, the jobs yeah. that you've done you've done yeah you know the jobs that you've done that you've enjoyed you tend to have yes. done very well very quickly that your, your yes. talents have been spotted shall we say and i know yes. that there's some really interesting, um, you know, uh, policies, approaches, research from people actually you'd expect like Microsoft, like Facebook, you know, who are actively, even Deloitte's, you know, the, the, the big professional services firms who are actively going out to recruit uh, neurodiverse and you know, obviously including people with autism because they can spot the potential that this this group has but clearly something like I mean you just think about the interview process right that's not oh. for people with you I mean yeah, yeah look at you, the, 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 <laughs> I can see your, your your expressions on your face our audience can't see that it's, it's a pointless yeah. process though it, yeah, it's not a necessary it's process it's just the way that neurotypical people have established doing things and then everyone just does it so yeah, how, would you, how would you, what would work for you then, Harry? What would, you know, in terms of giving, deciding you're the best candidate for a job, how, how do you think that process should work? It's not an interview. Well, yeah, the thing with an interview is that obviously there's biases that come with that. I mean, not even with autism. I mean, famously, you know, um, women in the workplace, hence why women are less able to get to these higher positions because they're less likely to see the interviews because of the biases of the people conducting the interviews, for instance. It's exactly the same with autistic people because we don't have that, that, that way of conducting ourselves that neurotypical people love that they'll they're naturally in some in some cases put off by us and they'll be less likely to consider us because they're like oh they, you know there's something that odd or different about them so i think if there was a way of analyzing people's qualifications in a less biased way you know simply partially who's the most qualified but also you know taking overall career in, in into uh, account so thinking right who's had kind of jobs before you know, is this someone's uh, job? Are they ready for this type of thing? What kind of, you know, th there's so many factors. And I just think there are different factors that could be prioritised instead of how you come across in the interview. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. And Ted, I saw your face as well. I mean, you know, the idea, for example, if you went for a job and you had to do a presentation, you'd probably drop out of that 
Uh, well, I go to the presentation, tell them why I did, I wasn't going to do one, and why I thought it was a load of nonsense. Which is exactly what you know, like jobs, though, isn't it? You know, as well as I do, that I'll go. If you know the times I've been for an interview, I've gone. Well, look, I'll come for an interview and I'll talk to you. But if you, as soon as you start quizzing me with something you've written up on a piece of paper, I'm not discussing that any longer. We'll have a proper conversation as human beings, or none at all. And <laughs> and that's kind of. And I know that seems really frustrating, but it's it's almost like I don't know. Like Harry and I, in some sense, we have a bullshit bypass filter. We don't need to impress anybody because we probably don't care. And actually, it's it's more important to know who you're working with, what the tasks are at hand. Can we all enjoy it together? Is, is much more important, I think, to us. Can, we, can it suit all of us? You know, you know as well as, as, well as I do, you know, it does, two minutes at a bus stop and I'll be sitting next to undoubtedly an autistic person and we'll be communicating and talking about experiences because, you know, I think, I think that, like, as you said, the formal interview, you know, weeding, we, the weeding process of candidates you know, the whole, even just the whole way it's, the language is set up, it's, it's, there's a whole sort of peculiar, um, there's a lot of value judgments oh. attached to it. It's, oh, you know, you've got to be in that and you've got to see in that. That doesn't necessarily make you a better or worse person or better or worse employee. It's almost, it's almost a nonsense way of, of stratifying mm. and regulating human beings and, and creating a, 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 an unnecessary hierarchical system, you know. I mean, how often do you find you, you read the stories that the chief executive of Tesco's started off as a slightly dysfunctional young man filling shelves mm. and then this potential was eventually spotted and then he moved forward. He was never can He was never vetted in a system that, vet, that vetted. And the system is like Harry says, is, is biased to vetting out people who both don't necessarily fit. And now that those a lot of tech companies are realizing this don't have those biases because these are the characters we actually really need to come up with the ludicrous ideas that make something useful happen. They're not vetting them out. You know, Harry and I have probably spent our lives being vetted out of things because, you know, instantly they say, oh, you know, you have some, some difficulties with this. With the best will in the world, you know, that's, it's easy to, to, to place bias on that and, and sort of and say, well, we could do with less aggro of having the person that's going to be emotional if it's noisy, you know, mm -hmm. failing to, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, as you know, I'm not a fan of conformity or interviews or spreadsheets or... <laughs> Oh, you have a spreadsheet. Yeah, I don't know. No, I was, I was just going to say it's, it's a great example, actually. That that oh yeah, maybe Harry isn't suited to a to a busy cafe environment, but there's nobody that loads a dishwasher like Harry. I mean, you ask an oh. autistic person to load a dishwasher. I could wax lyrical about this. <laughs> the two points I have to make about that: one of them linking back to the cafe thing, because there was that disconnect, <laughs> and there was almost this distrust that the, a lot of other people had of me. There, I the dishwasher wasn't working properly. It just nothing was coming out clean. So I tried to implement a system of pre-rinsing, which worked, and I tested it consistently. And every time I did it, it came out spotless. And I kept telling people, and no one ever did it. And as a result, the dishes were always coming out dirty. Yeah. So it's like, why are you not listening? Because what I'm what I'm saying is is accurate. It helps, but there's some bias because because of how I come across. Yeah. And and yeah, that brings up I mean, yeah. <laughs> So, so, so just, just, just moving on then, um, you talked a little bit before, Harry, about how it, well, basically what I want to try and get across raising awareness is just to get some sort of insight into how it feels to be autistic. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll never be able to understand that because I'm not, but it's interesting when you and, and, and dad described to me how it feels, I go, oh, okay, I didn't realise that. So you talked before about, you know, having five conversations going on, you kind of, you can't tune them out. No. Um, 
how else would you describe to a, a neurotypical like me how it feels to be autistic? Um, well, I, I suppose that would depend on, on the specific trait of autism. And, and of course, autism, it manifests itself in variable different ways in different people. You know, it's a spectrum, not a single diagnosis. Um, I don't know. It, it can vary. Like the overstimulation thing I've been over, you know, or everything going on at once. You can't you can't not focus on it. You can't not. And as a result, it's like, yes, yeah, just being shouted in the air constantly. Basically, you can't tune out inside your own head as well. There's a lot of. I always say it's, it's like I've got at least two thoughts going on simultaneously all the time, at least. So it, it can become just being in my own head can become very, very stressful. So especially when there's like a lot going on in there, you know, a lot of ch that's why we don't respond well to change as well. Not because, you know, as I say, because we're any less because we're any less robust or because, you know, we're weak or anything. It's because there's so many things that we're having to think about, but it becomes too much to deal with. And that goes for change, that goes for simulation, that comes goes for any sort of major emotional experience in our life. If there's a lot going on, it, it's a lot harder for us to, to deal with, with other things because there's so much going on in there. I think, I think you highlighted it earlier, Eva, when you asked Harry and I about certain, you said, I'm going to ask these couple of questions, maybe get you to introduce yourself. And Harry and I said, no, we don't feel comfortable with that. Yeah. And I think that sort of highlights... Um, interactions uh, even even conversational interactions can be quite stressful and there's a, there's a lot going on yeah a simple, a simple what would appear to be a simple question that should have a simple answer sometimes i mean you know we i find it very difficult sometimes to have responses because the others it's like it's almost like too big a question there's too many probable answers and there's too yeah. much to think about so so yeah, yeah. someone says oh how are you look i've, I've learned over the years to say someone says how are you today i say fine and then i add probably 20 minutes of a conversation about exactly how I am, which is probably going too far. And, mm. and always reading the crossed arms and the sort of tutting eyes as people kind of started to zone out a bit because they didn't actually want the answer. Mm. And I think that's, that's something I've always found confusing. I think Harry does as well. If someone asks me something, I will tell them, but I'm, I always forget, always forget that they might not actually want the answer. They're just giving me a random cursory phrase to acknowledge I exist, but they're not really interested. And I think that's the other thing that Harry and I quite often suffer from. If we ask someone something, we're genuinely interested and want to hear the answer. Mm. I think, you know, it's not, there's no sort of, there's no, it's, and it's quite difficult to understand which one it is, indeed, isn't it? I mean, even in the workplace, yeah. someone sort of, you go to work, oh, morning, how are you today, Harry? And you go, oh, I'm fine, thank you. And you're not quite sure, should I tell them more? Should I say yeah. any less? Should I tell them how I actually feel? Oh, actually, I feel yeah. a bit depressed today. It was a bit awkward. I got up this morning and my toast burned and it upset me because I'd, I'd made a mistake again. We hate making mistakes, don't we? Oh, horrible. Because we're so busy concentrating on the nor the rules of norm and trying to work out what they are, which baffle me even to this day, what the rules of norm yeah. are, that um, we're so busy trying to concentrate and work out what they are so we can fit in and be part of the system that even when well, something fairly small goes wrong, spilling the tea, burning the toast. How often do I burn rice cakes? Every day. And then, yeah. and, and then that'll, that'll affect me for an hour. I'll be thinking, I should have done them for four seconds, not six, you know, and it won't go away. And I think that's a, a bonus in a work environment where you need to be that OCD about stuff, you know, numbers or systems or whatever. But it makes it more difficult if you work in a cafe, doesn't it? Because you're emotionally yeah. charged for an hour when you need to get the second round of toast out to the customer. 
Mm. So, I, mean, I remember a famous case where we went to Cafe des Arts, and we still laugh, laugh about it, Em, and it was a, it was a local programme that was assisting people, on this, uh, non-neurotypical people or neurodiverse people back into workplace, and it was a cafe, yeah. and it was the most calm, beautiful, lovely place to ever go for lunch or anything, and we went in there, and the lady politely came out and said that um, your sandwich would be a little bit longer because um, so there'd been a little bit of a problem, and the tomatoes had ended up the wrong way, and they have to remake your sandwich for you yeah yeah and that's and that's both one of the challenge of being an autistic person but actually personally i think it's one of the most beautiful sides of autistic people is the fact that they have a, a concept of a, a good way for tomato to be mm, you know yeah. I mean, perhaps uh, if, if we could all be gardeners i don't know if that would be better or not i don't know no, i was just i was just um reflecting on the the point you made earlier about how you interpret questions. So I know one of the questions that I I can't ask you because it really stresses both of you out a top 10. It's like most of us oh, knew, no, no, we love no, a top no. 10. It's like top 10, you know, tunes no. this year, top 10 Christmas songs, all and, and and with you know, with you and Harry, top 10 just blows your mind because you have to take it really, really seriously. You can't yeah. just go, my top 10 today. It's got to be the absolute, I've put loads yeah. of thought and effort into this top 10 ever. It's, it's, and it's you can't answer it, can it's you? It's such a small question, but it's so ultimately ambiguous that it's almost mind blowing. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's top, you know, top 10 of, of something. Well, what do you mean by top 10? Top 10 of what I think is the best, top 10 of my own favorites, top 10 of what I think would fit that. It, there's so many possible variations that will never be specified. And yeah, pe people think it's a confusion thing as well, because I imagine a lot of people would assume, oh, autistic people, they, you know, pe they like, or certainly I do, I like writing lists of things, therefore you must love top 10. So there's a difference between them. Top 10 involves a level of value judgment and ranking, whereas listing is just ordering things. But yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I can't, I can't do a, I can't do a top 10. I tried to do a, like, it's been very difficult to try and work on. I did a thing where I'm ranking all of like the films I've ever seen. But I have to do in order to establish what my like top ten are. I'm I have to have a system in place as to how I rank them on on that and a value judgment, which makes it a lot more stressful. And I can only establish what the top ten are after I've ordered everything else, whatever ends up in that top category. Because I could put something in there and have to change it later, and then it's inaccurate, and then there's all those all those potential problems with it. I think it's a really brilliant glimpse into your world, Harry. And I think that's what will make you a brilliant scientist. So, you know, I think that's, you know. Hopefully. <laughs> so what, um, what, are you, what are the biggest challenges for you being autistic? You know, what are the things that you find really difficult? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> quite difficult, Harry. We got, we got all day. Living. <laughs> no. Um, oh, that's... Well... One of I, I think one of the biggest challenges is is the autism itself is that so many people don't understand what it is and therefore can't always properly sympathize or empathize with with what you're going through. Mm. And because no, I mean, no neurotypical person can ever fully understand it. I mean, you can obviously try and educate yourself a little better or, or, or look into it and you can get pretty close. But, you know, it's one of those things where like unless you're living in an autistic brain, it's really, really difficult to grasp. Um, but yes, so many people misunderstand what it is. And because people don't understand what, what it, what's going on, they can't always understand what's going on or sympathize, which I'm repeating. But yeah, so if, yeah, as we said, if, if you're very stressed about something, you know, a neurotypical approach would be, you know, get over it or, or, or try and suppress the emotion or think about something else or, or whatever it is. But that stress can't. is, it can't just, you can't do that. And they don't understand why it's happening. 
and you can't you know list every single reason as to why you might be stressed because to a neurotypical person those might be quite you know small things um i just realized i'm be quite loud um That's but okay. yeah no, no one can really fully get it which can make it very frustrating to try and anything that involves any level of reasoning it's just it, it's very difficult mm, yeah can, yeah yeah and what about you ted what what do you think are the, the biggest challenges to you as, as an autistic person Challenges. It's a big, you give me a big question there. Yeah, I think I managed to circumvent the answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'll flannel a bit and then I'll get away with. If I give them an answer and they keep smiling, then we're all right. We've made it. We've succeeded. Um, Challenges. Obviously, there are many challenges and many benefits. Uh, We we don't. We're not always aware of our own challenges. I think um, some of the, the stimulation challenges are difficult. I've always been personally aware, I think as Harry is as well, that in, in interacting with others, which we desperately love doing, we're, you know, we love being with people, we're very sociable, but when it doesn't go well, or, the, or that communication is not very, isn't very successful, I will then obsess about it a lot. Yeah. And I can't put it down because I'm desperate to find out where it went wrong, why it went wrong, what I didn't understand about it to lead me to have made essentially mistakes in how I've communicated. And as, and as we all know, at that point, I become quite emotional and don't quite know how to regulate my emotions productively. Or if I feel for some reason that I've, been, uh, I've done something foolish or, or, or I've embarrassed myself somehow, I don't like that very much at all. And, and, and that's their, their difficulties. And obviously in the workplace, you make mistakes because there's, no, there's not always a right way of doing anything you do. And you're gonna have a supervisor or boss come to you and say, oh, you know, this has happened. We'd like it like this. You've done it like this. Can you, there's a massive sense then of, of uh, failure or getting it, getting it wrong, which I think I take it very personally. I think it's quite typical for autistic people and then think I've missed something. I feel foolish. I feel isolated and there's a very strong emotional response that goes with that sense of getting, making mistakes that's difficult to deal with. Mm. Um, and then I'll obsess about them intensely. Even years later, I'll rerun conversations that I've that have gone wrong to try and work out how it didn't work right and what I should have done or what I could have done or what I, I'll try and look for what I've missed. Yeah. I think we're always aware of missing things, aren't we, Harry? That, yeah. That in an environment. So, mm. I mean, you know, we talk about this and it's simply in a workplace or a social environment. We talk about this often. We, we know we, we talk about it, Harry, because I try and encourage you to do this in the absence of always knowing what to do. I've always gone to a party or a work event or a function or whatever. And I'll go, right, I don't know what to do. I don't know how this works. It's all completely alien to me. It makes no sense. So I'm going to talk, go around. I'm going to talk to every single human being here to make sure I've covered the bases and I've, I've got in the mix and I've at least said hello. And if, you know... And invariably, I'll go up to someone and say something slightly unusual. I might ask them how they feel about Hubble. And isn't it amazing that it's just spotted something? And they'll sort of look, look at me as if to say, what the hell are you on about, you loon? <laughs> but it, it maybe, you know, it's that, that's all we've got to offer sometimes, isn't it? Mm. I don't know yeah. what etiquette, so I'll give the yeah. thing and hopefully that works. And if it doesn't, you have to sort of brush yourself off a bit and carry on, don't you, Harry? So, yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah, you touched yeah. on it a minute ago when you said that we do desperately want to talk to people and we love being around people mm. i mean inevitably pretty much all autistic well most autistic people are fairly introverted anyway so as long mm. as we can have some time to ourselves as well then that that's fine it's not that we're antisocial. Mm. it's just that the thing with a lot of autistic people is they learn at a very young age that they're different and that they want to interact with people but they can't do it in the 
because there's this reinforcement of, of negative outcomes because they can't do it in what's seen as the correct way, which I feel I should point out is only by a neurotypical standard. Uh, autistic people see neurotypical people just as weirdly as they see us. You know, to, to, to us, they're a lot really strange. Um, <laughs> and I think, but yeah, at the young age, most autistic children will have that negative reinforcement. And as a result, they just shut off and they're like, right, that hasn't gone well. I don't like doing that. And, and I think that's, a, that's a, that, ostracized. So I'm just going to stop doing it. And I think that's one of the big barriers to work, perhaps, for autistic people. It isn't necessarily the system's prejudice against them. They find it difficult to put themselves forward. And also, I think that bruising of um, confidence that is constantly reinforced through having a, a neurodiverse, living through a neurodiverse brain in a fairly, you know, structured neurotypical universe, mm -hmm. um, even though obviously the universe was made by neurodiverse people, <laughs> but we have to accept that the neurotypical people are the majority and we have to mm -hmm. work with them. Um, but um, that bruising of confidence is very difficult and it's very difficult to, to overcome sometimes an autistic person. Uh, I think that's difficult. So that access to, so a difficult point in a conversation at an interview where the question's asked and you, they say, well, tell us a bit about yourself. And you think that is the most gut-wrenchingly awkward question anyone could ever ask me. And yeah. I have no concept of how to answer it. And it fills mm -hmm. me with terror and fear. And I want to run out the room. That isn't that, that is, you know, the confidence to say, you know, but by the way, I mean, I learned over the years to get have to say, I'm terribly sorry. You know, it's a great question. I really don't really understand what you've asked. I struggle with those kind of questions. If you want me to go over there and work that problem out for you, I will give you the answer. But if you want me to answer that question, I'm going to struggle with that. Mm, and, but yeah. that, that takes a certain amount of, you've got to put yourself forward and be prepared to, and a lot of neurodiverse people, I think, suffer with a lack of confidence. Mm. And they just need help and we've talked about this before compassion and fundamental for me is kindness compassion and kindness towards somebody having difficulties no matter who they are or where they're from or what their neurodiverse situation whether neurotypical or not that that kindness and giving someone time to be themselves is absolutely fundamental i think to everything we need to do yeah, and that's just absolutely. how i feel about life really yeah 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 absolutely um and and just to sort of look at this from a different point of view, what are the benefits of being autistic? Where does it really help you? Or, you know, where does it really think, I'm really I'm really glad I'm like this? Yeah. See, this is... So what's your is, super, superpowers, Harry? We get to talk about superpowers, come on. Excellent. <laughs> this is where I, the first before, little prelude to this question is that autism is very much... I don't know if you've got a question later about how people view, view autism or, or not, which is why I haven't touched on it too much, but it's like people view it as a as a... A problem a problem that has to be overcome or in in some cases cured or or, or rid the world of and, it, and that's completely the wrong way of looking at it i always argue that in most cases you shouldn't really call autism a disability it can be disability like especially for people who are much further along the spectrum than myself or, or dad you know people who really struggle with it in those cases it is a disability because it's so there's so many problems but even then it's not an entire negative experience because it can't be a disability because there are positives to it and there are things that we actively do well not not necessarily better than neurotypical people which i'm saying to be <laughs> diplomatic but um but yeah so i mean you mentioned your analyzing of, of, of data and things when you were at um uh was it what was the company we don't, we don't need, we would leave out company names here we just move yeah. on we do yeah but when you were doing that and it's like uh, ability to focus on things especially that we're very very much interested in uh, allows us to really 
get problem, into it and you illustrated it beautifully problem solving problem solving but also problem very good solving and being yeah. right we know we're right when we're right we're right end of story we yes. know we're right there's no point having a dialogue it doesn't need to go to committee we know we're right and it's convincing the other people around us they've not quite caught up with that thinking yet that we know it yeah and that's not always easy is it yeah, exactly. Problem solving is also a thing that's helped. Like generally, autistic people have a lot of outside the box thinking, mm. um, which is very difficult to summarise. But the way in which we generate ideas or about about these kind of things, it, it seems to be very different from the way neurotypical people do it. I can't say necessarily put my finger on exactly what it is. I'm no psychologist, but there is that difference in what kinds of things we'll think of, or how we think of it, or, or our methods of doing stuff. And that's why, you know, so many people, so many huge technological developments have been the results of autistic people just doing things that no one else thought of. You know, these are the obvious example would be Alan Turing inventing the Enigma. Was it the Enigma machine? No, the Enigma machine was a German thing. The, the, what is heralded as almost the first computer like, or one of the first computer like machines, which was to help break those Enigma codes. And that was the result of work of an autistic person, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of other good examples. Typically, my brain escapes me the second I try to do that. But stuff like that. So autism has actively benefited humanity, but people like to forget that. So there, there are those, there must be positives to it, at the very least, as a result of that. But do you, do you experience those positives? Do you, do you feel like, you know... Yeah, absolutely. Good. No, absolutely. There, there's a lot of circumstances where I've found that certain work or I've been doing or a certain thing I've been working on especially in comparison to a lot of neurotypical people the standard or the way in which it's been approached has been hugely beneficial uh, one example would be um you know a, a college one of the courses I'm on uh, my teacher has said that he hugely benefits I'm, I feel a little bad saying this because it's like it sounds arrogant but it's, you're not arrogant Harry go for give it us something big about yourself come on he, he said that you know it's things like is actually benefiting having in the class because it's always a different insight and very different points of view that other people have or that you know people saying that i'm very quick to pick up on on things that other people don't necessarily notice mm. um all the, the the standard of work that i that i that i do especially if it's something i'm interested in it'll be to the highest highest standard um instead of just doing the work you know there'll be thoughts out uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, forgive me, I'm terrible at wording anything. That was good. This is ben- basically saying there's benefits and you enjoy some of the Usually, yes. That's good. Okay. And what about you, Ted? What are the benefits for you? The, the benefits for autism. And how you, you you know, in your in your reality, in your truth. In my reality, I think, like, like Harry, I think it's hard to get across. I think that some of the skills that come with autism, one is the... Uh, some of the I don't know if it's the I guess there's a hypersensitivity and then there's a problem solving kind of aspect to a to a, a neurodiverse brain that I think leads to uh, I work things out quite easily I kind of um, 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 I'm not usually puzzled by things too much I gra- you know grasp things it's not you know the difficult thing to understand is somebody telling me something. So it sort of takes me 10 minutes to work out what they're saying because they'll use all sorts of forms. But so yeah. in terms of sort of ideas or thinking or, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, so in some ways, they, they're, called, they're almost like um, puzzle solving. I almost do instinctively, I think, or problem solving. I can just do even almost without thinking. Great, sort of possibly a great benefit. As you know, well, no, never sit and watch a detective film with me because it, it'll just be like... Dumb. 
Yeah. I don't want to. It, make, it makes it very boring, really. But so their superpowers, um, obviously our humour and our wit is mostly beyond most neurotypical people, isn't it, Harry? Seems <laughs> to be, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've experienced <laughs> so that. We, we march to a different drum when it comes to these things. Mm. So, yeah. and that's, that, you know, they're superpowers to us. So we've we formed a club, haven't we, has really? So, yeah. <laughs> so the thing I'd like to, that I'd like to see also, I'd like to see neurotypical people um, almost being taken to sit quietly amongst a group of neurodiverse people and where they don't speak and they don't do anything. They just sit and sit amongst them and watch them interact and watch them be with each other. Because it's almost like it's peculiar when you put, I always find the same thing when you have neurodiverse people together, there's almost like this instinctive gravity towards each other and, and everything is very free and easy. And I think everything's very egalitarian. It's very kind. It's very respectful. It's very, isn't it, Harry? It's very decent. Yeah. yeah? Mm-hmm. And there's no, no egos will be present. No one will be trying to dominate. There'll no. Be, no, there'll be no nonsense. It would just be people wanting to be with people and listening to other people. I think they're the skills yeah. autistic people actually have. We're good at listening to things. And we Absolutely, hear. yeah. We're not just playing lip service. We hear, and these are skills. I personally think I have those skills. I hear what people say. Mm-hmm. I don't just yeah. listen to words and go and make my own decision. I actually hear what they're telling me. And I think yeah. they're very much skills that, that, that we have and I think should be recognized as well as the sort of weird mathsy stuff we quite often come up with so yeah i mean you mentioned the egalitarian thing there you know if you had let's say a team of a group of autistic people and a group of neurotypical people like different groups working on the same type of thing in terms of establishing roles in neurotypical people there'll be some weird not necessarily a power grab i don't want to be mean about about the neurotypicals um but, but there'll be some sort of dynamic there of people trying to establish whereas neurotypical people the um sorry autistic people what will likely happen is they'll say right we, we shall designate roles who's best at doing what and we shall designate based upon that so that we can yeah. work to the optimum efficiency yeah i think that's one of the skills that autistic people do bring bring is that we are i think we're great team players we're great cooperators hmm. and we value that i think I, I i think it's true we value that more than being um, you know, taking glory or being, yeah. you know, we don't need to score the goal. We're happy to help feed our teammate the ball so they can mm-hmm. score because we're, we are together doing it. Yeah. That's a very strong part of autistic thinking. Very much so. Well, listen, um, I, I could talk to you too, obviously, <laughs> which is quite handy. Or, li- or, listen, or listen to us all day. And listen for, for, for a long, long time, but we are, pretty much at time um been really really interesting just hearing about your experiences and this so this month is really about raising awareness of of autism and and obviously from a people lab point of view we're really passionate about um helping neurodiverse to have better experiences at work so is there anything before we finish that you you know you'd like to kind of get across or say or you think people really know from your perspective um I think in regards to the way things are changing, and obviously we'd like to change it for the better as, for as many autistic people as we can. But, you know, I, I think that it's, it's worth saying that at most there's probably about one in a hundred people on the autistic spectrum, most of them un- undiagnosed. And from what I can tell from most autistic people is that we don't want necessarily the entire system to change so that it, so that it suits us in that way. It's more about, getting people to understand um, us better so that we can create a system that 
suits more people and so there's measures in place to help people if if they're not doing as well it's not about overhauling it for our own purpose that's completely not what it is mm. so about being more inclusive then yeah just inclusivity yeah thank you harry not necessarily just like hiring autistic people over neurotypical people just for the sake of it either you know i don't want to be a, a token but yeah. you know is it inclusive so it just so you get the optimum beneficiary yeah. Sure. Thank you. What about you, Ted? Any final words from you? Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think I think it, the, my most wonderful illustration of, uh, of a bit of an autistic nature, I think it, it, to be in an environment where the the cafe, the, 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 the team leader in the cafe can walk out to the customer and say, I'm terribly sorry, your sandwich can be a little bit longer because we're just sorting out the fact that tomatoes need to be up the other way. I think just accepting and being, and, 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 and to be sit there and to go, that's okay, we'll wait, it's fine. The tomato will come the right way up and I'm sure the sandwich will be more beautiful because it's been considered. And, and I think that that is the way forward for everything. Let's have tomatoes always up the right way for everybody. So more kindness, more compassion, more inclusivity. And more tomatoes. More tomatoes at the right <laughs> way. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you giving your time. And I know it was um I know it's not the easiest thing for, for either of you to come on and, and, and talk on a Zoom call. It's not something you'd naturally want to do. So I appreciate you putting yourselves out there for no. me. Um she held us a gunpoint to get us on here. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see just off camera, there's a sniper aiming at us both. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, thanks, Harry. Thanks, Harry. Okay. Well, um, okay. So that sort of uh, brings to the end of this reset, reset show special. So huge thank you to both Ted and Harry for sharing their very open about sharing their thoughts and experiences of, of being autistic. And we will be back soon with uh, a next reset show uh, coming to you in the next few weeks. Um, so look out for that and um, have a great day and speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you.